0: Welcome to Dream Up by Burdock, a weekly podcast show connecting you with inspiring Asian-American creatives by exploring what they do and the paths that got them there. This is Dream Up. Hi, this is Peter Ashley. Today I'll be speaking with writer and musician Michelle Zahner, who performs under the moniker Japanese Breakfast. She has released two critically acclaimed albums, Psychopomp and Soft Sounds from Another Planet and her memoir, Crying in H Mart, will be published by Knopf next year. Hello? Hi, Michelle. How are you?
1: How are you? I'm so sorry I'm late. I was like making this ridiculous... I got caught up in this weird demo I'm working
0: on. I'd love for you to first yeah. just introduce yourself and tell us what you do for a living.
1: My name is Michelle Zahner. I play in a band called Japanese Breakfast. And I'm also a writer and coming out with a memoir next year called Crying in a
0: And can you share with us what a regular day for you as a musician might look like?
1: In choir. My days, I've been trying to find some kind of regimen just because I think, I think I'm a bit of a workaholic. So I just need to have some kind of, sense of productivity or self-betterment i guess Uh, i've been working out a lot i never really exercised very much until this year i kind of really committed myself to exercising and trying to feel really healthy i've been like this sounds really bad when i say it out loud but it is very i've like approached it thoughtfully but i've been trying weird diets to like I think have some sense of control, like, and their healthy diets are not like depriving me of food. It's just uh, I tried to be like vegan and not have like alcohol, and I tried to eliminate social media for a week just to like kind of detox and get like a hold of my body and mind or something. Uh, and I am pretty into eating uh, being an omnivore, so it was a pretty new thing for me to try. I've been playing a lot of piano, a lot of practicing a lot of piano, which is also super bizarre. Like my interests have just really gone in deep with strange things that I never thought I would get into again. Like when I was a kid, my mom made me play piano since I was five and I hated it so much. And now as like a 31 year old woman, I all I want to do is practice piano every day. I think it's just, there's something really comforting about approaching particularly sheet music and just If you sit down at the piano and spend like an hour every day, you will get better. It is just like a guaranteed thing that like your practice will end up with this kind of outcome, which is such a different feeling from creative work. Because sometimes if you show up every day, like it doesn't get better, like your work, you know, plateaus or whatever, or you make a creative decision that maybe makes it worse without realizing it. so. After writing a book for a while, that was like an extremely comforting thing to just be able to do something every day. That you know, I know that the more I put in, the better it will become. And lastly, I've been working on this soundtrack for this indie game called Sable. So I've been making like a lot of ambient music and composing a lot of different instrumentation for this video game. Which just, is, I'm just—it's like the last project I have to hold on to right now. So I'm like really relishing it.
0: And what would your days have looked like pre pandemic?
1: Uh, We would be on tour big time. It's kind of awful because in a way, like I privately always wished for something like this, like something to just halt the busyness of touring and balancing all these creative projects, just so I could have more time to like sit with the project and not be rushing um, to do a bunch of other things also. I definitely did not mean it like this. And I think that especially now that I'm reaching this place where I want to start creating new creative work, I'm realizing that so such a big part of that is living in the world and like absorbing human experience and kind of resetting, like, especially after I've like put out, like created a lot of different projects. I feel really wiped out, in terms of like what else to conjure, you know? So it kind of like at this period, I would be enjoying being a human being again and spending time with other people and like going to museum or going to shows or like, you know, just walking around, going to restaurants, enjoying myself and like getting to absorb that and think is such an important part of like the creative process and not having that is, has been kind of difficult trying to think of like, okay, what is my, what are my next kind of creative steps? I don't have, I'm not really inspired by it. I'm being stuck in here, you know, and there is this sort of pressure of just like, it's your job as a creative to like come up with a creative way to make something in any circumstance. But this, I think from a lot of artists that I've spoken to, it's it's very challenging.
0: Where do you typically find inspiration when you're out in the world?
1: I guess just like people's stories and conversations, you know, when you're like at the bar or hanging out with your friends and someone shares something really meaningful that happened to them or some piece of personal history that makes you think of just kind of like represents a greater uh, is like a greater representation of some sort of human experience. I think that those kinds of things, like the last thing I remember actually was like my friend's boyfriend was telling me about his memory of his father who was an alcoholic and one of his early childhood memories was his father like backing up drunk with a car full of kids into a mcdonald's drive-thru and it was really interesting because he was saying that for many years he thought it was because like he the dad was like wanting to check in on his like fish fillet but there's another like part of that memory that could be like it was for his like his kid's happy meal and the way that you like remember that memory really paints how you see that person right if it's like the dad was upset about the kid's meal taking so long it paints him in a more positive light than if he was like looking out for his own food I don't know just like weird little stories like that and the way that it makes you just think about like memory and and people in our lives and resentment and stuff like that can conjure like so many more ideas, I guess. And so now that you're kind of like stripped from spending time with people or just like going out and enjoying the world or like leading, like leaving more room for surprises is, is is gone right now. So I think that that's, that's where I usually would get that kind of inspiration from.
0: Right. Cause I guess all those stories from other people also conjure up personal experiences
1: yeah, I can, totally, totally, yeah.
0: Yeah. Can you take us on a journey of how your career started and how you got to where you are?
1: Yeah, it's a very long journey. I started playing music, I guess, from a really early age. Like I said, I was five when I started playing piano. But it was always this thing I had been forced into. And then when I was 16, I started playing guitar, and it really felt like it was my own thing. And I think I just fell in love with it. I think I always wanted to tell stories in a way. I was like an only child and I grew up in the woods and I had a very kind of lonely childhood and spent a lot of time with myself and my imagination. And so I think that I had developed this kind of almost like narrative way of thinking. And when I started playing the guitar, it came very quickly, My an ability to write songs and a real enjoyment and passion for it. It was never something that I was encouraged to pursue or continue. It was just kind of like, okay, this is always going to be something I do on the side. And I just kept with it through college. And then, you know, felt like I had to do all this stuff, like this preliminary stuff to um, have something on the side. Uh, And then once I graduated, I was like, I'm going to spend the next few years trying to play in a band uh, that was largely unsuccessful and did a lot of crummy tours. And then when I was 25, after doing that for a while and working a bunch of restaurant jobs and playing to a lot of basements with like 10 or fewer people uh, and making no money and spending all of the money I'd made at the restaurant trying to support this dream. Uh, my mom got sick when I was 25 and I moved back home to Oregon to care for her for about a year before she passed away. And I made a record about that experience called Psychopomp, which I then released with a really small label. And I was kind of just like, okay, this is it. I just wanted to like make this last record, and I'll sell like 500 copies over the course of the next like 10 years, and then I'll just get a job in New York. And so, moved to New York. I got a job um, as like a sales assistant at a marketing company, and the record started doing really well, and. I had thought that if I at least tried to climb the corporate ladder, I would do a pretty good job, but it turned out that I was not doing a very good job at all. And so when my like year end evaluations came, I was like, I'm definitely getting a raise. And they were like, actually, you're doing a really bad job. And I was like, so blindsided. And I think that the boss felt really bad for me and he like kind of thought I was cool. So he offered, he accidentally offered me like, two months severance pay, even though I had only been there for like nine months. So I kind of took that as an opportunity to like try to see if I could tour on the record and and kind of like make that work. And then I just never worked a day job again since then. And then I was like, I think I was 26 when that happened. And since then like it's just been opening for other bands and playing, you know, starting with like 250 capacity rooms to 500 to 1,000 to 3,000, you know. So it's just, it's been a real like slow build over the course of like f- 15 years. I feel like.
0: And then you were writing throughout that whole process as well, aside from your music.
1: Yeah. So I studied creative writing in college. And it's really funny because I always, I had one professor named Daniel Torde who I, who just like opened up my whole world because neither one of my parents went to college. Um, They're not very like literary people. So I was really, I had only, I really only knew like what kind of art to consume through school and going to a small liberal arts college, like opened my world up in like such a huge way. And so I just took every class of this one professor that he offered and so I took mostly short fiction and novel writing and he had one class the one class of his that I didn't take was nonfiction, because I never thought that I could write from my own perspective because I felt like it was like always going to be like niche literature and I could only be like a literary figure if I wrote from at the time I was like really into like dirty realism so I always I really aspired to write like this kind of like Gruff, you know, working class white men, and those types of stories were like what well, was literary to me. And I just felt like if I wrote the perspective from like she's like a, a, I'm like a half Korean woman, like I, I didn't think anyone would be able to relate to it. So I just was like, I can't. I always will have to write fiction. I have no interest in writing nonfiction. I remember, I actually wrote a short story about my Korean aunt who passed away. And I changed her name from Unmi to Emi. And instead of like whatever we were eating, I had them eating like broccoli, (laughs) chicken or something. Because I just thought it was like going to be more relatable. But then around the same time that I was recording Psychopomp, after my mom passed away, I had this really interesting kind of like therapeutic experience cooking Korean food and during my grieving process. And I thought, You know, it would be an interesting thing just for me to unpack uh, through writing. And so I wrote my first um, sort of short essay about that experience. And around the same time that Psychopomp was being shopped to small labels and getting rejected, I was also getting rejected from a number of publications that I submitted that essay to. And then maybe like six months after getting like 30 rejection letters, I won Glamour magazine's essay of the year. And I thought it was like a scam because <laughs> I didn't even remember submitting to them because I had just mass submitted to like every literary contest that didn't have an entry fee. And then I wrote another piece called Crying in H Mart that was kind of a deeper dive into that essay. And it was published in the New Yorker. And then I was approached by a number of agents and we took it to auction and it got picked up by Knopf to be released next year. So that was also kind of a really long process.
0: You talked a little bit about relatability. What are some of the biggest challenges you faced while trying to pursue a career in music and your ethnic background?
1: Um, It's hard to say. I mean, I think that, you know, even... I would say before the project, Japanese Breakfast, I think I just... I used to be in a band called Little Big League with three guys, three white guys. And at the time, I it just felt really important to me to not stick out as like, I didn't want to be a front woman. I didn't want to be Asian. And I just wanted to be a musician so badly. And it felt really important to me to like do certain things to just like not stick out. Like I, w- I wouldn't you know, a lot of times photographers would like ask me to stand in front and it was really important for me to like stand in the same plane as the guys. And I dressed definitely like more masculine because I felt like in order to get taken seriously, I needed to just like be one of the guys. But, you know, of course, like internally, I was very aware that, you know, especially in that like genre, it's pretty white male dominated. So, you would go on tours and a lot of the times be the only woman or be the only Asian person or a person of color in a group of people. I and mean, then like, you know, 30 people that are all on tour together, especially when I first started, it was a little isolating because you felt like pretty alone in your experiences. And now it's a lot better. And, you know, I was really lucky when Japanese breakfast started because the first person who took me on tour was Mitsuki. and it was a bill with Mitsuki and Jason And me and it was like the whole tour bill was maybe like 10 people and it was completely evenly split male female and yeah there were three Asian women like and it was at the time like we didn't really even think like how big of a deal that was going to be and then like there were some publications that would come out like it's like you know one of the first like all Asian American women like fronting this bill and it was really such a privilege because i had been stuck in the sort of genre and a lot of these tours that not only were the was the tour party like very male and very white but so were the so were the audience you know and with mitsuki it was like such a perfect introduction to play um japanese breakfast songs to these crowds because her crowds are also like actually like you know just quite diverse and it was a real joy to to see that change
0: and do you have any tips or advice for someone wanting to pursue a career in music?
1: I think that if there's anything to be learned from my narrative, like you have to really just do it for yourself first and pursue it like as intensely and honestly and purely as possible. And if you continue to do that, hopefully you know, something really great will come for it. I think that for a lot of, you know, a lot of the time when I first started and like the only thing I can pinpoint to like why this became successful is because I had kind of just completely given up on anyone giving shit. And I think that only when I did that and just made something that was so honest and so myself and not trying to be anything else was when that was really able to resonate with other people. And so it's very difficult once, you know, like, It's hard to divorce your ambitions from your work, but it is definitely, uh, I think, a worthwhile endeavor to just not try to aspire to make anything that isn't, that doesn't really feel like it comes from this like very unique place from you. And I think another thing to remember is it's a complete lottery. I know so many people that I consider to be far more talented than me and you know, way more technically proficient and making way more fascinating and catchy stuff than I do. Writers definitely write better than me. And there is this kind of like shame that I feel that like gotten some success and and they haven't, it is largely just luck too. It's like, it's, I think it's equal parts, like showing up every day and putting in the work, but also just knowing like It is just complete lottery and not to get discouraged. Like people, it's not resonating with as many people as you want it to, at least initially. It could just be that it hasn't gotten to the right hands yet. You know, it doesn't mean that it's bad. It just means that the right person hasn't found it and helped you, like the right press person or the right manager or the right whatever. So not to get discouraged by it not happening for a really long time. Because honestly, I mean, I put a lot of work into this for 10 years before anything happened for me and I had completely lost faith in it ever happening and it really did and I know people who have been at it longer than me and still haven't found that and I I hope that they never give up just because you know they get discouraged
0: but I think your advice about being authentic and true to yourself is such incredible insight because I think often it's so easy to get in your head and start overthinking everything you're creating and thinking about how others are going to think about it. So I think that's really amazing advice.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, even still, I feel like I have to kind of divorce the, that, you know, like it's hard to, at this point in my life, when I have like a number of people who like depend on me as like employees, yeah. like I want to create, you know, it's hard to not be like, okay, this album has to make sure that like everyone gets raises for the next, like, you know, uh tour cycle. And we get to like, we make enough money to be on a bus. Like, it's really hard to then go and make a record and not think about those things. Like it's always work to, to put in. I feel. Like.
0: So, what projects do you have coming up that you're excited to put out there?
1: God, like all of them. <laughs> so I feel like I've just been making stuff for the last three years, and uh, hopefully, it'll finally all come out this year or next year. As you know, I have a record that's uh, we're not quite sure when it's going to come out yet. It's just tough because, you know, music videos are so important to me and I direct all of our music videos and I would hate to not be able to make any music videos for this this record. So hopefully new album will come out this year. Crying in H Mart, my memoir will come out next year. And I think that Sable soundtrack will also come out this year and the game as well. So
0: I'm excited to see and hear everything.
1: Yeah. And it has a beautiful album cover I love so much.
0: <laughs> I know. I'm really excited to see those images that we worked on together.
1: Yeah, me too.
0: Well, thanks so much.
1: Yeah, thank you.
0: Thank you to Mark Rodito for the music. Please support us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes or your podcast app of choice. And join us next week on Dream Up we